Chapter 9 of War and Peace begins with a quick introduction of the eldest daughter of the Rostov family, Vera. She is four years older than Natasha, so she thinks herself an adult. Natasha is introduced being 13 years old, so that puts Vera somewhere around 17. Throughout the novel, Vera remains distant and ancillary to the other Rostov kids. Nevertheless, Vera remained with the adults who were guests of the party in the drawing room with just two of the remaining Rostov kids. All the others ran off, but Nikolai and Sonia remained behind. Nikolai is a child of the Count and Countess, while Sonia is a niece, or some type of relation affinitively referred to as a niece. Sonia was described as petite, with a thick braid of black hair, slender and graceful, but not that tall. Sonia superficially pretended to follow the goings-on and conversations of the adults, but her attention was clearly focused on the one she was devoted to, her cousin Nikolai. It becomes quickly apparent there's something more to their relationship than just family devotion and friendship. She loves him wholeheartedly, and she is suffering the emotions knowing that her young love is going off to the army, leaving her in a short period of time. It is very hard for her to bear and she wears her emotions on her sleeve. Unlike Nikolai, who is stoic, Sonia's passionate adoration is not fooling any of the adults as they all notice. Count Ilya Rostov is in the middle of describing to some of his visitors that his son is going off to the army in somewhat of an aloof manner. He's basically telling his guests in a friendly way, What can I do? What can I say? This is what my son has decided. He notes that Boris will be off, that Boris has received his own commission in the Imperial Guard, and that Nikolai copied Boris and joined the service for friendship's sake. It's that pull, that call to national service that's being exemplified here. Sort of what young people, 17 and 18, felt in the United States during World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor. But in this age, 1805, it was more of a chance at glory. And even though Napoleon was the enemy, to try to mimic the pattern of what Napoleon had set for young men. Basically, that anybody can enlist and work their way all the way up the ranks. Napoleon went from ensign, the lowest level officer's rank, all the way up to emperor. And young men of status all over the world wanted to do the same. And Nicholas and Boris were in a position to try just that. Nevertheless, Count Rostov is lamenting that Nikolai gave up his position at the university and is choosing, and he's saying this in a playful way, to desert his old father. He notes that Nikolai even gave up the cushy government job that he had him set up for, namely a position with the National Archives as some type of clerk. Nikolai, however, intrinsically is not a cataloger, nor is he a natural student with a strong intellectual curiosity. He's a straightforward, plain-spoken young man, and Nikolai knows in his heart he's following the path that's right for him. And he's going to try to convince his father of that, even if it's in front of everybody, but in a diplomatic way. For context, if he had gone into this archive position, that would mean he was the cataloger of national or military events, keeping track of all the documents for new policies and laws and progressivism of the day. It could have also included keeping track of educational records, or more specifically of the nation setting up educational systems. Good archives will trace the story of a nation, a government, a municipality. Archivists preserve, catalog, and make available information for posterity. One of the visitors brings up the obvious, that with Nikolai going into the army, that could actually be dangerous. 
The unknown visitor notes that war has been declared. But Count Rostov, in so many words, dismisses this. This is not like that scene in Gone with the Wind, in sort of the beginning of the movie, where the southerners come in, whooping and hollering that war has been declared and they're all running off. This is a situation in time where war always seems to be declared, but to at least Russian society, it seems very distant, and they're not that much involved. That, however, is soon to change in 1805. Essentially, the Count is just not worried. He notes that the proverbial they have been saying that for a long time, and people are going to continue to talk, and war is going to continue to be declared, and nothing will happen. Essentially, he's not that scared for his son, which one would expect if they were going into a very hot conflict. Here, Nikolai says, Papa, that's not the case at all. I'm not following Bora. What I'm doing is I'm following my vocation, what's in my heart. I'm an army man. I see that. The Count responds by speaking to the visitors. Look, everybody, my son, here he is. He's going to be leaving soon with Colonel Schubert. From the best I can tell, this is a fictional character. And Nikolai, he's going off to the Pavlograd Hussars, which is a combat group, a light cavalry group that is quite historical. He notes that Colonel Schubert is on leave and will be taking our Nikolai away. And what am I to do but let it happen? The Pavlograd Hussars are quite real, and Pavlorod is a city in central east Ukraine. The Hussar Regiment was one of light cavalry, existing since about 1723 and created by Peter the Great. It was based on the Serbian Hussars, so you could see a long link of affinity between Serbia and Russia. Such a line of affinity does not exist between Ukraine and Russia. There's more of a line of animosity, distrust, and Ukrainians not wanting to be a part of Russia. The original idea of this unit was to travel light in small units on horses. The officers would famously have a sword and a pair of pistols on them. They were mainly used for intelligence, gathering information and also skirmishing. But during certain phases, including the Napoleonic Wars, this unit was definitely used in battles. And the group famously fought in a couple of battles in 1805, which will be later depicted in the book. They did distinguish themselves in a number of battles in the Napoleonic Wars. Poignantly, and relevant to the book, they fought in 1805 in Lower Austria, a couple weeks before the Battle of Austerlitz, at the Battle of Hallebrunn, also called the Battle of Schongraben. At Austerlitz, Napoleon brilliantly beat a coalition of various countries, including Austria and Russia. But at the Battle of Hallebrunn, France had a chance to take out the Russian contingent early, but Napoleon blamed his generals for missing out on that opportunity through some treaty agreements that Napoleon said his generals did not have the right to make. In essence, Napoleon felt his generals allowed the Russians to get away at that point. But nevertheless, they would soon be defeated. Back to Pavlorod, just for some context. It's, it's an important city in Ukraine as it has three rivers that flow through it. It's also a railway junction and an industrial base and has been for a long time. It's a very old settlement, and before any thought of industry, it was home to the Zaporozhsky Cossacks. The Zaporozhsky Cossacks were outside to the Russian Empire and Polish and Lithuanian empires. They were independent and wanted their own way of life, similar to many of today's Ukrainians, who want nothing to do with Russia in the area. Their spirit is alive and well and will never die. Pavlorod was the Cossack region, untamed to a degree, and even when it was occupied, that fighting spirit still endured. The Cossacks in what is Ukraine today 
where something like samurais or medieval knights, they had a code of chivalry and their way of life endures in legend in the hearts of the people who still live there. They would sing songs about the life of the warrior, the faithfulness of their wives, and the special bond between the men and their horses who they used in warfare and to hunt. In many ways, the Ukrainian Cossack came to symbolize the Ukrainian ethnic image. The people who considered themselves Cossacks did have ancestors from what is now Ukraine, from Russia, from Poland, from the Tatari. They're people who migrated away from the empires to beyond their borders. In a sense, that's why Ukraine is sometimes known as the borderland. So they migrated to have their own community and identity, but being so nearby, the great powers of the day had to form allegiances and would from time to time. By 1805, the region was controlled by Russia, so because of the warrior image of what the Russians associated with Pavlorod, the Russians stamped a brigade in honor of the city, perhaps thinking that being associated with the region would make their soldiers fight more fiercely. The Cossacks would look at their region as, well, beyond your borders, this is our land, Ukraine. Even though the ethnicity was mixed, the Zaporozhye Cossacks are often thought to be the first Ukrainian society and identity. It was them saying, hey, we're different than you, Russia, we're different than you, Poland, we're different than you, Lithuania. With Russia being in control of that area, they stamped the name of Pavlograd, different pronunciation than the Ukrainian version of the city, onto a military unit to try to incorporate that warrior spirit into their army. Russians stamping their name on something truly Ukrainian has been the Russian way for a long time. This is a bit of a tangent, but it is important to remember, historically, that Cossacks did have a field day taking apart the retreating French when they left Moscow. Repelling invaders was one of their specialties, and I hope that spirit remains alive for however long Russians try to remain in what is Ukraine in our own century. While many in Russian society lived as serfs tied to the land, the Cossacks would not live like that throughout the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. Their ideal of self-rule has served as an inspiration for many a nation in later centuries. So finally, back to the story, with Nikolai ready to join the Hussars. Nikolai tells his father, if you don't want me to go, I will stay. But look at me, I'm not a diplomat, I'm not a government clerk. You know, I really can't fake it, Dad. My future's in the army. Very well, very well, Count Rostov says. The Count is not going to stop his son, nor stand in his way. He's going into the service, and that is respected. Count Rostov notes in the book that Napoleon has turned all their heads. They all want to go off to war and find glory. They think they can go from ensign to emperor. Napoleon is both the envy and enemy of the society man of that time. He's, in a sense, how men measured themselves. The ideal, he realized what one man can do with hard work, intelligence, and a passionate drive. Napoleon worked his way up through the ranks through specializing in logistics, which is not so much the hero of the battlefield, like in the earlier Viking and Roman days, but how one keeps supply lines running smoothly and gets an army fed and well-positioned. Over time, the pen and intellect, even from a source other than nobility, became much more valuable if it could help the common effort. Back to the party. Julie Karagin, who's the sister of Anatole and Elaine, 
begins some small talk or to flirt with Nikolai. The two are seated next to each other, their chairs get a bit closer, so do their bodies and heads, they sort of whisper to each other, they talk about who was at the latest party and how it would be nice to see each other at the next one, that type of thing. Sonia observes this and she could barely contain herself. She is so devoted to Nikolai. She feels as if her heart is stabbed, she, she tears up, and off she goes. She leaves the drawing room. Not so subtle to be unnoticed by all the adult guests. The incident provides a little fun and fodder for those who want to share some joyful gossip about the kids and their love lives. Nikolai was a bit embarrassed when he noticed. He had to wait for a comfortable pause, and then off he went in search of Sonia to comfort her. The adults commented how young people always wear their hearts on their sleeves. Countess Rustoff is then given a bit of leave to describe her experience as a mother, which is kind of timeless. She notes aloud how much suffering parents must go through before they can finally enjoy their children. Natasha Rustoff the Elder also notes that adolescence, which most of the kids are at, is the most perilous age. And she's focusing on Sonia, Nikolai, Boris, and Natasha. She also describes the relationship she's trying to foster with her children. It's one where she describes as having no big secrets. One where Natasha can come to her mother freely and confide in her as her first confidant. She says any other attitude will foster a relationship where kids keep the most terrible secrets from their parents. She feels she'd been more strict with her oldest child, Vera, and that the relationship between her and Vera is more distant than the close one between her and Natasha. She also hopes that the relationship she has with her son will make it so that even if he engages in some mischief, he'll never turn into the boys like Anatole and Pierre who wound up tying that bear to the police officer's back. She references her daughter's Natasha's singing voice, that it's beautiful and they have a trained Italian master to teach her. One visitor notes that, hey, isn't that too young to start training their voice at age 13? But then, Countess Rostov notes, didn't our parents get us married when we were 12 or 13? This was a very different day. Boris's mother, Princess Drubetskaya, is also present. And given the way she went to such great lengths to advance her son's career... Boris's mother is probably satisfied that Countess Rostov is mentioning how much Natasha Rostov is devoted to Boris. The parents all seem to know that Sonia loves Nikolai and Natasha with an equal affinity loves Boris. The Countess, still speaking to everybody, notes that it's best not to prevent things like this or the children are just going to go behind everybody's back anyway. Chapter 9 closes to bookend how it began, with another description of Vera, the eldest Rostov child. In the beginning, she was introduced as being in the room. Now we get more of a physical description. She's described as a handsome woman, which for a female is definitely a loaded term. She's also described as smart, a quick learner, but there's something aloof about her or distant from the rest of the family. She's not described with any level of warmth or spiritual deepness that some of Tolstoy's favorite characters are characterized by. It's even said that when she smiles, it gives her face an unpleasant expression. But her father very much still loves her, and closes this section by paying her a compliment, noting she turned out splendidly, no matter the approach in terms of warmth and openness that Vera's mother had taken with her. 
At this point, the Rostov dinner is drawing to a close, and many of the guests get up to leave.